Um, I actually, I want to tell you about time first, the discussion that we've had in here about time. Uh, let's see, where was I? At Thursday night at Ananda Village, they did a Babaji appreciation because Shivani had dedicated this Ananda movie to Babaji, and it was a year ago on Babaji Day, July 25th, that they launched it and started the filming the next day. So one year later, it was celebrating the completion of the filming, so of the whole production. So she played a little excerpt from Swamiji leading a meditation. I don't even know what context it came from. And he said, Time and space are the result of movement of your consciousness. If your consciousness is absolutely still, then time and space disappear. Wasn't that a nice variation on the theme? Yeah, after all the discussion that we've had about that. So that has been like a a really interesting way. Because I remember I started that whole discussion by Swami saying, if there's no movement, then there's no time. If there's no time, there's no space. But to just bring it all the way back, to that if your consciousness is unmoving, then there's no vibration, there's no moving from here to here, and then there, there's no the time elapsed as you move from here to here, but it all comes down to the consciousness not oscillating. So I can't really say anything more about that, but I thought it was definitely worth passing on. I've been enjoying trying to meditate on it, see if it tells me anything. If it does, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay? Did you want to ask your question, Tom, or shall I just go on? Look at him smiling. Okay, You're, okay, we'll just go on. Tonight, I, I consider that I think we covered the Om pretty thoroughly, even though there might have been a line here and there that we didn't quite reach. Um, but I think we really said all that we really needed to say about it. So, I'm just gonna, I'm going to go now to one thirty. So we're still in the first Samadhi Pada, and we're at Sloka number thirty. And this is another one of those lists. So now he's giving us ten things. Disease, dullness, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sensuality, false perception, missing the point, instability, and backsliding. These are the obstacles. Interestingly, he doesn't say these are some of the obstacles. He just says these are the obstacles. Um, and, And this comes... It doesn't really relate. No, here it is. Through meditation on the inner, the one before, 29, through meditation on the inner sound of Om, one gains the power to overcome all obstacles and to realize his oneness with the inner self. So Om meditation allows you to overcome the obstacles, and then here are the obstacles that Om helps you to overcome. So everything leads one to another. So this is really a continuation of the Om. You know, always is the question people are always asking me, how do I change my faults? So Patanjali is being really direct with us. And this, the faults, doubt, carelessness, laziness, it's all through meditation on the sound of Om. And that's because, he says, where it is earlier, the Om technique is one of the best ways to overcome the ego consciousness because the best way to overcome ego consciousness the main obstacle to spiritual enlightenment is to be identified with the body. So Om tells us that was the meaning of Jesus' words, eat my body, which everybody then later thought he was talking about the bread that he passed out. But when he said, eat my body, his body 
was all of physical creation because he was no longer uh, uh, identified with his body. This is, of course, the self-realization interpretation of that. That's not actually in the, in the Bible per se. But once you understand his consciousness, when he spoke of body, everybody thinks about their body as what they're living in, but this body is, is it's seamlessly connected to everything else in material creation. So when Jesus incarnated... He, no, he was no more defined by that body. That's why he um, said the Son of Man sometimes and the Son of God sometimes. Because when, when he said the Son of Man, he meant that which people could see, which they called Jesus. Because it was the Son of Man. It was material. And it was, it was born of woman and it had those characteristics. When he said the Son of God, he meant the infinite consciousness which, of which, was, which was manifesting through this body, but was in no way limited to it. And to eat is to make your own, to take into yourself and to become one with. So when he wanted to say, how you absorb my consciousness, you eat my body. In other words, you, you take into yourself the om. And this is again what Patanjali is saying also. The masters all have to talk to the people that are around them. And they have to talk in ways that the people around them can understand. And in Kali Yuga, there was nothing, there was no way to be explicit. People just didn't have a subtle understanding. As on Mas, in private, of course, to his disciples, he could say anything. But most of what's in the Bible is what he said publicly, more publicly. He took the disciples aside, they'll say sometimes. But... uh, so the, the Om vibration being the way to overcome the body, I was just going back at it from the other side, Jesus having overcome it. And he also, that's when he talked about, he'll send us the comforter, the one who will lift us out of this um, agony of physical identification. And interestingly, after he sacrificed his physical body, Jesus, um, he was able to lift his disciples up on the day of Pentecost, that, that the the dissolution of his own body. I mean, this is just the kind of poetic way that everything works. When he, when he sacrificed his own body and used that as the vehicle for burning away the karma of his disciples, then they were able to go into the Om vibration. They were able to go above their identification with their physical bodies too. That was the sound of many rushing waters that came to him on that day. It's really beautiful. So now he's telling us that by attunement with the Om we can under- overcome these um, he points out that um, almost all of these relate to mental weakness, but even physical disease is harmful to the meditator because of the way it affects our mind and our consciousness. Because really what happens to the body is not all that important. It's what happens to the consciousness that matters. Because the body's only going to be there for a short time anyway. I mean, it, we, if we had any perspective on how short the span of the inhabitate, inhabitation of one body is, we would have a very different relationship to them. I had my picture taken the other day, and I just said, my, look at her, she's getting old. You know, it's just like there it was. People have been sending around a lot of old pictures and non pictures, and wow, and all of those, she looks really young, and now she doesn't. You know, she still looks bright-eyed, and she looks fine, but just different, you know. We can all recognize ourselves because we look like what we look like, and just happening all over again. How many times has it happened? I find it fascinating that in the astral world they say your body is in your late 20s. So that, that, which was interesting to me because that sort of says on a certain level that the fascination with youth is not just random. The first time I read that I thought, oh, 
But then Sri Yukteswar, in the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar in the autobiography, he chose to have an older body. So he resurrected on Hiranyaloka, and he looks like an older man instead of like a young man like everybody else. Why? Who knows? Who knows what any of it is? But it startled me because I've always been sort of scornful of the idea that youth made any difference. And to realize when we have a choice, we made ourselves young. But I think young bodies are very pretty. They're not worn out yet. They're vital. Who knows? Well, that's what it says in order. I don't know. I have no information about the astral world except that. But Master Sri Yukteswar says most people's bodies look like in their their late twenties. I'm pretty sure it's right in that chapter is where I read it. Yes, because I think we'd have a choice. Because Sri Yukteswar, by contrast, says that most of them had those young bodies, and he chose to have an older body. So that would be the implication. But I suppose. <laughs> he said, maybe it's just the default and nobody cares except Sri Yukteswar. I was actually trying to... Um, I was trying to figure out if there's something inherent. That, that was what, that's what it made me think, that there's something inherent about a, a certain identification with that particular look. I know that you know, watching the body grow old startles me, still, which seems so ludicrous. I mean, when I, when I noticed that I was noticing, I was horrified. I thought, how many times have I done this? How can I even be noticing? But nonetheless, there it is. And I'm noticing with just that little bit of, oh. Maybe, so that's what makes me think there's something inherent somewhere. Who knows? Well, fitness is... Well, I mean, the advantage of youth in a physical body is you have vitality and you don't have aches and pains, and you can stand on one foot, and you can climb stairs, and all you know, kinds of things that when you reach my age, you just notice that we did a play here once a, few, a couple of years ago, and it was from Swami's story, and we had all, everybody was playing birds. It was his story, The Singer and the Nightingale. So we had lots of people who were all in playing these birds, and we had, the, we had them lined up on a wire, and they were, they were sitting there, and we had them all sit down for a, a little part of it, and then when they got up, I mean, I just went into hysterics. You know, they were all kind of leaning forward. And, <laughs> and it was just the most geriatric collection of birds. And it was just, like, really, it was just hysterical. We, we had to just stop and everybody had to figure out how to get up without making the audience rush to help them because it was just so pathetic. I mean, there were a few younger ones in the crowd. <laughs> but we really did. Everybody had to figure out a strategy for getting off the floor. It was awful. So there's things like that that are nicer when you don't have to do it. But Swamiji, you know, got so old and he was so... Well, it was, an, it was a burden. It was a nuisance for him. I was so touched. You know, because at the end of his life, he couldn't even walk. He took two people and when you helped him walk, he was... It was not just a courtesy. He was gripping your hands and, you know, a lot of his body weight would be on you for him to walk. Um, and I, then I saw... A, a bit of a, just a home video of him when he was probably in his 40s coming out of the temple at the meditation retreat and he had on a dhoti. He lifted his leg and the dhoti parted. He had these powerful muscular legs and he stood calmly on one foot and put his sandal on, you know, which was just, and he couldn't even put on his own shoes at the end of his life. Somebody had to kneel in front of him and put them on. And it, it really, wow, you know.
you know, things change. Just, and because that was always what he was like. And, you know, it's just a perfectly natural gesture for a younger person. Amazing. So anyway, this is about disease. Number one is disease. He doesn't mention old age here because old age is inevitable. So he mentions disease. Um, in each one of these, he sort of talks about, you know, why it's a problem. And the problem is, of course, that discomfort distracts the mind. Pain and discomfort distract the mind from meditation. And that's, that's why disease is an obstacle. And that's why the masters all talk about staying fit and healthy. Because Swamiji once said something to me, which I, I still pretend he didn't say or didn't actually mean, even though he said it in very plain English. He said people often think they're having great karmic experiences and usually it's just there's something physically wrong with them. And it was just such an awful statement, I just put it right out of my mind. Because we like to think we're doing something other than just being compelled by our physical bodies. But he was telling the truth also that whenever the body is a little unwell, it has an effect. And we, we, we start thinking certain thoughts because the body's unwell. Or we begin to become stressed. And then the a physiological uh, quality of stress. I remember I became a devotee of exercise, specifically of swimming, which is the exercise I've followed for about 15 years, specifically because I, I realized that the, the physiological nature of stress, and I, could begin, I began to feel that, I began to be sensitive enough to feel stress starting to rise and assuming its physical, physiological reality, and I realized that if I, whatever time it was, I got up from what I was doing, and I went, drove to the Y and went swimming, I could interrupt that physiological process. And, and so I discovered this huge emotional, mental, and spiritual benefit from physical exercise because it kept the body healthy and fit. And so it wasn't distracting me so much. And it was actually, it was the mental effect of the tension that's created by mental stress, but it became a physical disease at that point. You know, vast numbers of diseases are all caused by stress because the stress changes your physiology. So his emphasis on keeping healthy and fit, and Master talked about it all the time, about how much you should exercise and drink water and fast and proprietarianism. But then Swami also puts a condition here that many people then become obsessed with physical health and think that physical well-being is the key. I, I, I came to Ananda as a food fanatic. And I, like many people, I'd sort of, my first real spiritual journey started with diet, which is not a bad idea because it's the first time it occurs to you that what I'm doing is affecting the way I think and the way I feel. And so first becoming a vegetarian, just developing uh, almost just an aversion um, to anything that used to be moving on its own power. And... Uh, but then it just got more and more of all the fads that were going around in the late 60s and the early 70s, which, you know, just lots of them. But I began to associate being spiritual with being strict in my diet. Just it, it, the two became close in my mind and particularly had an aversion to sugar. I didn't eat sugar and I hadn't eaten sugar in a long time and I was very proud of that and, some of you have heard this, but not all of you. When I very first arrived at Ananda Village, it was the first summer. That was the first summer I was with Swami Kriyananda. I arrived on June 1st, somewhere toward the end of June. 
it was somewhere right in there. A group of us went to town, and he, he took me to town with him. I think yes. And afterwards, Swamiji always had a... He ate well, but he, he liked good food, and he liked desserts. I mean, he later developed diabetes, not because he ate so many desserts, but it was just one of the karmic conditions he took on. So he didn't anymore. But before that, he used to like desserts. And when we'd go to town, we'd often go to Swenson's Ice Cream Shop, which in Nevada City was a really big deal. So we, you know, go into town once a week at the most, so it wasn't like you were really indulging a lot. There was, I think there were about ten of us at the table. It was a rectangle table. Swami sat at the head of the table, and I ended up sitting at the foot of the table, so I had a view of him and everybody around me. And Swamiji enjoyed everything. So the ordering of ice cream, we were, you know, everybody was extremely enthusiastic about ordering ice cream, and they didn't just order ice cream, they ordered, you know, ice cream shakes, or, or mostly sundaes, or banana splits, and just the, there was a whole lot of hoo-ha about ordering ice cream. I ordered a glass of water, no ice, please, room temperature. <laughs> so I sat there with my glass of water, while everyone around the table, including Swamiji, were enjoying ice cream and passing their dishes back and forth and tasting each other and just talking about how delicious it was. It was way, way exaggerated, I'm sure, at least partially for my benefit. And I just sat there holding my glass of water and I had the sense to realize that it was probably I who was out of step. It probably wasn't the rest of them. But it, it, it vividly um, called into question my whole concept of what I was doing. Because they were all so happy, and somehow I wasn't. Something was, was wrong with that. So soon after that I began to lighten the reins a little bit. But he, he also said something very interesting about bodily purification. It actually came up in a conversation with another Swami. They were both saying that in, in more elevated ages, like Satya Yuga specifically, where the veil between spirit and matter is much thinner, that, as they put it, just a little purification of the physical body opens you up to uh, vaster spiritual perceptions because the veil is thin. And so if you just lighten the, the, the burden that the physical body is to you, your consciousness can expand much more. But in early Dwapara, which is where we are right now in this cycle, um, he said it's, matter is just too dense. And there's just not, you, you just can't do enough to your physical body to really have, it, have the barrier and the burden of it go away. So devotion is the way to get closer to God. And then the body just is about keeping it fit and healthy. And, of course, keeping it fit and healthy is also an enormous amount about your mental attitudes and your freedom and your joyful willingness. Just what I was saying about the physiological effects of stress. I mean, so many illnesses are caused by stress, which just has an accumulative effect on the body, which really says they're not physical diseases at all. They become physical because of the way we hold the energy, and then that energy creates a pattern. But Swami also emphasizes in here, it's very important, the physical body is also the way you work out a lot of karma. So you, we should do our best to be fit and healthy, but if the body has another agenda, if there's another karmic agenda for that body, you can't really say that this is not, um, that you're not being spiritual, or there's something wrong with you spiritually. I mean, a great soul like Swamiji or Master, the karma they're running through their body is not their own. Swamiji had, you know, his medical condition was 
dramatic. I mean, every time he'd go into any hospital, his medical records would go all over the hospital. Everybody was always so interested in him. Sometimes his medical records would go around the world. You know, everything can be electronic. You know how doctors consult this interesting case that they found. He was a very interesting case and impossible to unravel for the doctors because they couldn't... How can you unravel the fact that this body is acting out someone else's karma? I mean, there's, just, there's very little cause and effect between the, among the things that would happen because there, there, no there was no visible cause and effect a great deal of the time. But for many of us, we have to suffer what we have to suffer through our physical bodies because it's going to teach us something. And so whatever it is, we can't only think, I have to do it right and this is my responsibility. But it's very important, especially when, when you start out when you're starting out in your body, to develop really healthy habits really early. I mean, almost no attention is given to this in, in education. In fact, even all the food that they're fed and everything that they're done, the children, it's, it's, it's criminal. In fact, um, somebody once said the best thing you can do to get your child into Harvard is to teach him to drink sufficient water because the synapses of the brain happen in the medium of water. And if uh, children are dehydrated, they are not as smart. Just teach your child to drink water and have a better academic career. I mean, it's just so... But it's true. These habits start. So we teach our children to energize, which is even better, because then they really are working on a subtle level. So for us, we have not only the conventional health-oriented things, but we also have energization, which simply cannot be overemphasized in terms of it's important for keeping us fit and healthy. So no matter what stage you are in your health, it's definitely something to add in. And then he says the, the most health-producing thought is to keep the thought of God in the mind. He said physical health is important, but mental attitude is far more important. But nonetheless, these are the diseases. A disease is an obstacle. That tuning into the own, which means therefore having a surrendered and a devotional attitude toward God is one of the ways that you overcome it. Um, so... That is that one. Are there any questions or thoughts about the first one? Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. We've talked. You've talked about how everything comes back to consciousness. Everything is consciousness. Everything is consciousness. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if you could, either now or in the thread of your talking. Give us a couple of examples of how an everyday life situation like the body and health and can be in our in our thinking and in our um, observation of ourselves and our trying to act in the proper sort of trace that back to consciousness so I can see the you know it's at this it's kind of a theory. I'm looking for an actual example. Well, okay, I'll give you one. I used it at Sunday service yesterday, but I don't or whenever Sunday was, two days ago. Um, I, was, I was visiting, you know, my friends up at Ananda Village, and someone started talking enthusiastically about something that they were going to do. And just, I don't want to give all the details of it, but their enthusiasm for that meant that something else that I had hoped to have happen wasn't going to happen. And my friend is being very, very happy and hasn't been happy and was very happy like this. 
all of a sudden, the thought crossed my mind, but what about me? Just, it just came in like, a, like from nowhere, just this attitude, but what about me? If you're happy about that, but then that means I don't have anything to be happy about. And I just, I just sank like that. I practically burst into tears. I was so distressed. And it was just like I was completely incapable of seeing what was positive for my friend. I could only think of what was happening to me. Perfectly, perfect consciousness. And then for like an hour or two, I found I had to leave the room. I was moping around. I actually finally realized that in truth, you know, I, it was really somewhat related to Swami's not being at the village. And it was all really about something completely other than that. But you see, that's all just consciousness. And I could feel it. I could feel that my energy was down. And I kept trying to do things to pull my energy up. And finally, when I went to the satsang and was just able to meditate deeply and see all the good that was happening, then all of a sudden my energy began to come up. And as soon as it began to come up, I thought, what could I be thinking here? But while I was thinking it, I was just completely trapped in it. I think Divine Mother just wanted to show me what that felt like. Because I haven't felt it in a long time. I used to feel it all the time. Just all the time things would happen and, you know, it was good for them, but what about me? What about me? What about me? Doesn't anybody care about me? I may be the only one who's ever experienced that, but maybe that's a story. But almost always, whenever you feel agitated, it's just because of the way you're looking at it. Identified with yourself, worried about yourself, lack of faith in God, sense of of denial, fear about the future, whatever it is. And those are all just different different types of what you might call a darkening consciousness. It's, It's limited awareness. Um, that's the word that I've always... I like that word the best. Awareness is the best word. You know, I, I had limited awareness. And when you have limited awareness, you live in a world of insecurity and lack. Because you feel yourself to be isolated and separate, and you're not at all certain that God is going to take care of you. Or you're anxious because you fear that you may have a certain karmic situation to face, and you don't want to face it. Sister Gyanamata talks about sitting in prayer and seeing this karmic condition coming at her. And she realized she, she really didn't, you know, she was afraid of it. And then she, with great force, said, Lord, change no circumstance of my life, change me. And then, then her whole relationship, the situation was exactly the same. But instead of rejecting it and allowing it to disturb her peace, she just let it come. This is what's right in here. Uh, so he changes, he quotes the St. Rabia who says, um, he is no true lover of God who does not forget his suffering in contemplation of the Divine Beloved. That's consciousness. So we either think of, oh, I'm suffering, I'm, oh, I'm sick, or else you think, wow, look at all the karma I'm working out. Or you have this, I wrote this advice to this woman, I'm sure she can't take it very well. She was finding herself potentially being trapped in a marriage she didn't want to, an arranged marriage, and she was concerned it wasn't going to come out well. And I gave her a whole lot of choices. And the last choice was, you know, if this man doesn't feel to you like the kind of friend you wanted, be that kind of friend to him. And maybe that'll awaken in him some of those qualities. And even if it doesn't, if you have the right attitude now, in your next life, you'll win the kind of marriage you want. (laughs) 
I said, I suspect that's very small comfort to you, but uh, it won't be when that day comes, because then it'll be now. So that's consciousness. I mean, we don't think like that, but gosh, I wonder why it's not working out this time. Hmm, maybe because my karma is set up that I have to live through this bad experience. So, hmm, how do I avoid this happening again? I don't think having a tantrum now is really going to avoid it happening again. If you didn't win a really super-duper spouse, maybe because you haven't earned it, or maybe because there's something completely other for you to learn now about where your happiness comes from, or a thousand other things, and you won't really get out of that lesson until you learn it. And if you, if you allow your consciousness to just be preoccupied and worried about self, you're not going to get through it. You don't get free by doing it badly. It's a bummer, but it's a fact. And, and people just have tantrums over their karma. Not seeing that all that means is you just get to do it again. And if it's that terrible now, why would you ever want to do it again? When I was struggling to write that first book and I just was having so much trouble, I've said to you, one of the tremendous incentives to me was I have got to work this out because I do not want to see this again. This has been such a burden this lifetime and God forbid I should have a whole other incarnation in which I just struggle through with the same thing. So even if I fail, I'll at least persevere. I'll die trying. That will count for something. And in fact, I got through it, but still, consciousness. Circumstance was neutral. You need to talk into the mic because a lot of the listeners are on the video and so they have to have it. Okay. You need to put your mouth pretty close to it. What was the way that you got through it? What was the way I got through it? Um, What did you do? Well, it was about writing this book about Swami, so I did get through it because there it is. Um, uh, One thing is I just resolved not to quit that I, I mean, and I was really having trouble. I, I worked on that book for several years and I didn't have a paragraph. I'm not exaggerating. I was so neurotic. It was such a weird period. Um, I had just a lot of karma that I had to work out. I had a very, I was very critical and very self-concerned about doing a good job because if you're so critical, you know, you, if you're so critical, then you're, you're, you know, you think everybody else is going to criticize you. Mm-hmm. So I just, you can't be creative and critical simultaneously. And then there were just, God blinded me. There were very practical issues. Like I couldn't figure out who I was writing to. And if you're trying to write and you don't know who your audience is, you're always confused. So from a practical point of view, from writing that book, I kept writing it to people who were never going to believe anything I was writing. So every time I wrote it, they would reject it, and then I would reject it. I mean, this was the process. I finally decided to heck with them, and I started writing it to people who wanted to hear what I had to say. That was part of it. The other thing was a very interesting one, which is actually true for a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, mental disturbances. It occurred to me that in my entire circle of people, including Swami Kriyananda, I was the only one who thought I couldn't do it. And, and then it occurred to me that these people are not stupid. Just like very objectively. These are not stupid people and they're honest people. So if, if there was real cause for doubt, they would, they would be honest with me. And, and that actually really startled me because then that really told me how self-centered my thinking was. I was just so self-centered that I rejected everybody's point of view but my own. 
much later I was talking to a woman who had an inclination toward uh, it was just, you know, unworthiness and depression that comes with that and um, just this constant reinforcing of whatever she did, it wasn't good enough, it never satisfied her. Other people thought it was good, but she didn't. Finally, I just lost patience and I yelled at her. I said, you're so self-centered. You know, everybody around you feels that you're a competent person doing good work, but you alone are the only one who can say, no, it's not. You're insulting everybody. I said, and we're sick of it. I was just, I was really mad at her. I really was. And it actually was a risk, but it worked. Because you see, when, you know, mental illness is, with all due respect, because I know people are really bound by it, it's very, very selfish. Mentally ill people just become completely convinced that the only reality is their own. It's, it's the ultimate subconscious state. They completely define reality and they will not be argued with. And that's what she was doing. I'm a terrible person and no matter how much praise was heaped upon her, reason was heaped upon her, she always got to have her point of view. And, you know, I said, are we fools? That's what you're saying in essence. So you turn it. So that, that got me out of it. That's how, I, that's how I could say it to her with so much force and almost like I had the right to say it because I'd been there myself. Yeah. And anyway, I learned a tremendous amount spiritually. Really tremendous. I said to Swami, except for the fact that I haven't a single usable paragraph, this has been a great experience. I wasn't trying to actually accomplish something. But then somehow I just finished. I finished it. It was a very serious karma and I finished it to an extent. I made a lot of progress and then I wrote a book. It took me a second book to really get better, really get good. But I broke through. And it was because, at a certain point also, just Swamiji being so good, on the phone he said to me, you know, this book just isn't happening. Maybe you should give up. (laughs) And, you know, just for a second it was like, wow, I could just give up. What what a great idea. But he he knew just what he was saying because that pushed me. And I I thought about it. I said, no, sir, I have something to say and I'm going to say it. But, you know, that was also the other. Okay, give yourself permission just to not do this and see how that feels. That felt really terrible. Plus the, oh, good, that means I get to repeat this. Now that's a reward, not quite. I mean, I find that about all karma, finally. It's like, if you've got it, you're going to have to face it. So what good is it going to do you to try to run away from it? Because you'll never get away from it. It'll just go circle around, you know, and come back at you. So you might as well just take it when it's right in front of you. There's a, another thing about karma, which is, as Swamiji puts it, you know, karma is like a wave of a certain height, and our consciousness is smaller than that wave. That's why it feels so big. And what we have to do is expand our consciousness to be the same size as the wave and a little bigger. You know, that's how it gets us. Oh, what about me? What about me? Is so much bigger than me. But when I get to here, get above it, then it doesn't matter. It's just not important. So when karma hits, it usually hits at a certain height. And Swamiji says, if you can rise to it right when it happens, then you can have a really big victory over it. What most people do is that, you know, a wave naturally over time begins to to dissipate. So often we just kind of hunker over here at a certain size, and then we just wait until the wave of karma has sunk to below our consciousness, and then we say, I'm over it. But that, that means you're only over the karma at the size that you've gotten your consciousness to be. 
And if you really want to succeed, you have to be huge. The, the famous story of um, one man in our community left his wife to be with another woman. It was one of those things that happened. And he had tried for a long time to stay loyal to the woman he was married to, but in the end it just really wasn't meant to be. And, you know, 30 years later, everything has just worked itself out and it clearly was what had to happen. But at the moment it was a big deal, especially for the wife who was left. And because we're Ananda and we're so strange and we're all just all there together and everybody's a brother and sister, the next day, somebody said, oh, I was going to have dinner tonight and maybe so-and-so and so-and-so. And he mentioned the new woman and the wife. Why don't they just come over and they can cook dinner? I mean, which would have been a normal thing to have had happened two days before. I said, excuse me, sir, (laughs) have you forgotten? Oh, no, he said, I know perfectly well. And then he just said, they're going to have to get over it sometime, why not now? He said, otherwise it'll be some future incarnation and they won't even know why they don't like each other. He said, they have to face it, let them face it. And it was hard for both of them because, you know, the other woman was also, everybody was friends. It was a very awkward moment. And, uh, the, but the wife said, well, if Swami thinks I can do it, I'll do it. And as a consequence, she said, she really just lifted herself up to a, a state of grace. And the whole experience just, you know, worked itself out. She knew so much faster. She didn't, she wasn't able to hold that, but she said it was always there. Even when she was having a more difficult emotional time, she remembered that she'd been just fine about this. She could remember what she felt like, and it just sort of gave, told her where she had to go. Amazing. That was always the most famous meet it at the crest story. But it's a real one. So that's the answer. Um, you need to click that off, because otherwise it creates a weird echo. Yes, perfect. Okay. So... Point number two, dullness. Dullness. Um, he says, the, the, some dullness is so dull that, that nothing at all can be done about it because if we're too dull, we're too dull to know we don't want to be dull, if you can follow that. So he said, the only, uh, the only cure for that is to work with someone who has more energy than you do. And sometimes that's actually, you can, even though it might not be chronic that you're always that way, it's really important to realize that when you are feeling like that and you try to avoid people who are brighter and have more energy than you, that's exactly the wrong thing that you should do. You should put yourself as close as you can to people whose energy is more dynamic and enter into it instead of resisting it. That's the huge advantage of satsang and huge advantage of community. And that's just, it's a benefit you just don't get if you don't have a, a dynamic spiritual family or I mean, a community of some kind, it's certainly better to have a dynamic spiritual family because you can, you, you can seek out people who have the antidote to what's plaguing you. And if you have the sense to do it, you know, I'm so tired tonight, I think I won't go to kirtan, I'll just stay home and get a video. If you can just drag yourself to the kirtan, you'll find that by the time you come home you won't even remember why you felt that way because the energy brings you up. He says, the only way to overcome uh, dullness, he says, is with willpower. Several of these, he says, quite simply, the way to overcome them is with willpower. He said, don't give in to what amounts to a spiritual disease. Exert your willpower to make an energetic push. And he says, at least for a few minutes at a time. (laughs) I love that. Until you find yourself climbing out of the mud pit. And, I mean, 
I know that all of you have experienced it too. If you just feel, if you can just get yourself to do something. This is where the, um, don't try to always go to the top, just go higher than the bottom. You know, maybe you had a plan to, to meditate or to energize or do yoga postures, but instead you're really just thinking about taking a nap. Well, then do the dishes. And maybe washing the dishes wasn't as big as the plan you had, but it'll pull you out of the lower plan. In other words, use your willpower to put your energy into something. I remember when I used to go home on Sunday afternoons when I lived at Ananda Village, that, that just those first few minutes after I got back into my trailer were always the critical few minutes. Because if I allowed my energy just to go into a kind of lazy novel reading or whatever it was I was going to do, if I went there, I would stay there all afternoon. And if I just pushed it, right, just for a few minutes, then the energy would come back and you would remember why you wanted to do something that had more dynamic energy for you. And that's why I love the way he said it, use your willpower for just a few minutes. And even then he says, a few minutes at a time. Um, he, he then ends with a very serious warning. I have seen too many dev- devotees allow dullness to pull them down so deep into sloth that, they became, that, that it became a permanent return to worldly consciousness. And he said devotees returning to worldly consciousness is what he's talking about. In other words, you have to take this really seriously. A kind of a lethargy, a lack of interest in your spiritual life, a kind of, well, I'm older now. I used to just, I just would pull my hair out when I would hear people say, oh yeah, when I first came, I went to all the activities. But you know, now I just don't go very often. Like, so why are you saying this out loud in front of other people? Like, what is the point of this? You're just saying that you've become spiritually dull. And you've become duller and lower energy, and you're presenting that like that's a natural cycle. It's a common cycle. But that's why out of a thousand who seek God, very few of them find him. Because dullness sets in. And it's a very, it's a very interesting that Patanjali used that particular word. Dullness means a lack of vitality, a lack of creativity, a lack of just kind of bright, enthusiastic energy, a kind of uh, lethargy where, where everything is concerned. Sloth is the word he uses. And so many people, I mean, quite outside of the world of devotees, people just become duller and duller and duller as they grow older. You just see them walking around all the time. Just, you know, there's no light in their eyes. Their conversation just couldn't be more boring. The whole way they move their bodies and relate to things, all conversation is hearkening back to things that used to be or just repeating. Swamiji uh, once had very serious high blood pressure and he went on a cruise. He went by himself on a cruise so that he would just rest because it's very hard to make him rest. And... Uh, he was utterly bored, which is exactly what he wanted to be. And he was, had an assigned table. And he said, there was, he said it was just amazing, the conversation. There was one man at the table that every night would talk about coffee. How coffee just doesn't affect him, you know? Some people, they drink coffee and they can't sleep, but he could drink coffee any time at all. Like, see this cup of coffee? I'll drink this cup of coffee and I'll just be able to sleep just fine. I don't know why that is. You know, some people can drink coffee, but I can just drink coffee. It was just, so, you know, just listen to him night after night. <laughs> I mean, the epitome of dull. 
But it's, it happens within us. You, know, you have to hear yourself. Am I just repeating myself? Am I having any new experiences? Am I having any new understandings? Am I developing any new talents? Am I just like getting into a routine and becoming really annoyed when my little routine is broken up? When somebody talks about something that I used to think would be exciting, do I just dismiss it as not worth doing? I mean, vairagya is one thing. I mean, that's an increasing sense of spiritual detachment. Dullness is something else. And that's why Swamiji says, I've seen lots of devotees fall into dullness and it, until it becomes a permanent return to worldly consciousness. What does that mean? That just means no creativity, no awareness of God, um, no capacity to transform oneself, just a kind of repeating of the routines. This is, you know, this is the nightmare of monastic orders. I used to, when I was in the Ananda monastic order back in the 70s, and we were living as nuns then, never anticipating that we would live, get married, which is really what happened to most of us. But I used to sometimes worry that, you know, right then the monastic order was so exciting and so much fun. What if the walls of it closed in around us? You know, what would happen then? And I, I, would, I feared being this age and being trapped in this sort of dull, unimaginative routine. I should have trusted Master better. I pretty much did. I pretty much figured that it wasn't going to happen. And it certainly never has happened. But you can see it. I, I think sometimes, on the other hand, about people who enter those very um, ordered monasteries, where this is, this, is the, this is the daily routine, the weekly routine, the monthly, the yearly routine. You can enter that in your 20s, and you'll know exactly what you'll be doing when you're 70 in that order. And I thought there's two ways to go on that. You know, one of it is to just have it become a dull routine, and the other is the incredible freedom. I could also feel that, what freedom that would give you. Because all you had to deal with then was your consciousness. You knew that everything else was just going to follow this orderly pattern, and it was entirely a question of what you did with yourself inside of it. Now, remembering that the way to overcome these obstacles is to listen to the OM. The OM is the vibration of creation. The OM is the source of all of creation. Listening to the OM, you're at the origin point of all creativity. Now, how could that be dull? It's the exact opposite of dull, ever new joy. So one of the ways you overcome this obstacle is by listening to the OM. In other words, by going into the spiritual life. So when we find ourselves on the spiritual path dull, we have no one to blame but ourselves, but then we need to become creative. We need to change our circumstances. We need to change our sadhana. We need to change our friends, whatever it might be, to just find a way. And it's, um, it's a tricky business. You know, I've been around long enough to watch it. That's why Swami says he watches people just sink into this. And often it goes with lack of physical fitness. Swamiji mentioned once, at some point he... He had a dream about football players, of all things. <laughs> and I don't remember the whole context now, but he had a dream about football players. And afterwards he really realized just how vitally important it was for all of us to remain healthy and exercised. And then he pointed out that the brain is a muscle. And if you don't exercise it, not just with thought, but even just physically, keeping the whole body moving, then the brain becomes duller and duller, just like everything else atrophies. And these are just, the disease is an obstacle. And then dullness, which sets in as a result of that. 
Are you bored with this now? Is it dull enough? Okay, let's, <laughs> let's end on that one and then take a short break and then we'll go on. Okay. Since this whole section has been about the Om, this is Bharat's wonderful book, Om, the Melody of Love. It's really a wonderful book. He's always been extremely devoted to the Om technique from when he was the colony leader here before us back in the 70s. On Sunday service, he would just sit in the front with his earphones on and his own board and never really thought that it looked a little odd. He was just determined to do it. He was very, very good. Big time. He's big at it. Yes. I mean, what a, he's a, a worthy spokesperson for the OM. Just in, re- in relation to Bharat and the OM, uh, some years back, I took the monastic training program of a month up at uh-huh. the Ananda Meditation Retreat, and Bharat and Anandi headed that program. Uh-huh. And this was right after he had recovered from a life-threatening illness. Uh-huh. And he talked to us at length about the OM technique and said that is what saved him. Really? Yeah. He said he, he would go every night into the temple at the meditation retreat and, and go into the OM, and that, over time, it just brought him back. Mm-hmm. and healed his body completely. Well, here it is. The obstacle of disease can be cured um, through meditation on the inner sound of Aum. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah. A, it's a very real fact. Because, because we are nothing but vibration, and when we become unwell, our vibration becomes off, and the Aum vibration is the ultimate harmonizing vibration. There was this woman... Sherry, I can't remember her last name. She was a sound healer. And uh, remember, she discovered this healing capacity when her daughter was very seriously injured when they were out, like, swimming in a lake or something. And they were quite some distance from a hospital. And her, her daughter began to bleed out. She was so, whatever had happened to her, the blood was just pouring out of her. And I don't know how the woman came upon it, but she found that if she... If she made a certain tone, the bleeding stopped. So she toned, just sat next to her daughter, and I, they either went in a car or an ambulance, and she toned all the way to the hospital. There was no ambulance, right? She toned that tone all the way to the hospital. As soon as the medics took over, she stopped, and as soon as she stopped, the blood started flowing again. But by then they were in the hospital. So she saved her daughter's life. So then she developed you know, a healing, and she could do it herself. She tried to turn it into a machine. And it, so we had this crazy machine that we were all trying to work with. Swamiji always loved, you know, he was a, is the phrase, early adapter, early adopter. Anything that was a little far out, he was really into. But here was the, what I was going to say. Two things. Just like people can see auras, which is much more common to think about auras, and people tell you about the colors and so on, she could hear your aura. And she would hear... What, what you were missing. And she would actually, she would, she would sound out what you sounded like. And then she would, could also feel the dissonances in those vibrations and she could give you the right vibrations and tune you. I mean, Swami, of course, loved this because it was such an interesting confirmation of all of this. Here's the last part. We struggled for months with this woman and her machines. And, you know, like many healers, she had a very expanded consciousness that was not entirely grounded in this world. You can, you can see that. So when we tried to translate this into these machines that she invented and all these things, it was, um, it was fascinating, but in the end, just impossible to implement. But at the very end of it all, when she was talking, we'd been struggling with all of this for all this time, she said, 
oh, you all don't need any of this. Your chanting has the same effect. Which was a fascinating comment that just the chanting does exactly the same thing that she was trying to do by all these other means. Because Master spiritualized those chants. Those are a window on the infinite. They have a... Music not only reflects consciousness, it also creates it. So it's not merely that you choose the music that you like already, but what you listen to makes your vibration. Just this morning, actually, uh, Victor was telling me that we were talking about music, and he said that he was quoting Plato. He studied these things. Plato said, if you raise children on beautiful music, the right kind of music, whatever that would have been in his time, you won't have to teach them moral laws. Because if they have listened to beautiful music, they will automatically be able to recognize moral law. Because, and then we were talking about why, because if you listen to refined, uplifted vibrations, you know what upliftment feels like. And then when you have experiences that contradict that, you will feel that as a painful contradiction. And then Victor talked about the fact that he was raised, he was raised in a different spiritual community, so he was raised on uh, spiritual music and classical music. And then in, as an early adolescent, he, he moved a little bit out from that society into the public schools and so on, and for the first time he started listening to popular music, and he said he actually felt sick. You know, it made him sick. And he was aware of the fact that that music was actually just literally making him sick. And then he, of course, he repudiated it after that. But that was the confirmation of Plato's law, Plato's suggestion. Isn't that fascinating, all of that? Swamiji put so much emphasis on the right kind of music, and he was so, he was so emphatic about that. He let Ananda Village be built entirely different than he wanted it to be built because that was a battle, he said, that wasn't worth fighting. Instead of having uniform architecture in the style that he imagined it, he let everything be built higgly-piggly, and it's just, you know, it has no... Uh, it's a beautiful place, but there's no aesthetic unity. You know, not, very few of us had been to Europe at that time, and if we had been, we would have realized what he was seeing. All the villages in, in well, Sisi, but so many places in Europe, they're all built the, in the same architecture, and it creates such a harmony, and it's just, it's a no-brainer that the community should have been built with the uniform aesthetic but people were so rebellious, he let it go. He just said he wasn't going to lose the whole thing over that point, as important as it was to him, and even to the end he would lament it. But he never compromised on the music. That's the point I'm making. He never compromised on the music ever. He held to it absolutely no matter what, because he knew that it was life or death. The architecture was unfortunate, but music was life or death for us. Fascinating, isn't it? So never underestimate the power of the OM to save your life or change your life. And just to be clear, because Edwin asked me during the break, I'm not just talking about the OM technique. I mean, anything that lifts your consciousness. OM is not just doing the OM technique and listening to it in the right ear. It's, it's the power and the vibration of spirit. That's where you... It's the Divine Mother. That's where you go. That's, that's, that's the first experience you can have of the spirit is of its light and its sound and its bliss. That's what I was saying last week about you can feel the Om as well as hear it because it's Divine Mother, it's the feminine, the divine close to us. Okay? Any questions or thoughts about that? Okay, number three, doubt. And doubt, Swamiji says, is one of the worst obstacles 
And he quotes uh, Krishna from the Gita, the doubter is the most miserable of mortals. Oh, that's just so painful. The most miserable of mortals. And doubt is something that people um, have a hard time when they have it. He says, he first distinguishes, he said doubt is quite different from needing to understand something before you'll accept it. And, and so it's the opposite of doubt is not mindless acceptance. Because it's much better, as Swamiji always said, he prefers, he prefers a good argument to a mindless yes, is how he put it. It's just if people are saying yes to him and he knows they don't understand what he's saying, they're not really embracing it, they haven't really made it their own, that's not really a yes. That's dullness, is what that is. And if you don't understand and you need to understand and you have to keep asking the questions until it's clear to you, that's not doubt, that's honest questioning. And that's having being independent enough of mind to really want to understand that. Doubt is when, but, but that kind of questioning is when you, you know this must be true, but you don't understand why it's true. And over the years, I finally got into the right relationship with that with Swamiji, which is, I assumed if he said it, there was something, in, but if I didn't agree with it, there was something that I wasn't getting. And, and that didn't mean that I always behaved properly. I mean, on more than one occasion, although one particular occasion, he, was, he had made some suggestion or issued some um, idea about something, and I didn't like it. And I was nattering on about my objections to it. Finally, in slight exasperation, he said on the phone, you always agree with me in the end. He said, so just be quiet and think about it for a while. <laughs> Which was actually, really helped me, because I realized that I, I spoke too fast. I mean, because Swami sometimes changes his mind. It wasn't like, you know, or we'll hear a point of view. But he, he, he was presenting something that I knew he really was committed to. And there was no point in my arguing with him. And of course, when I stood back and thought about it, I realized he was right. I just wasn't seeing where he was coming from. But it's a respectful question. And even if you respectfully disagree, doubt is when you're predisposed to believe that it's false and you're just trying to pin down exactly why it's false. And that's why on the spiritual path it can just create so much misery for you because you're trying to follow a path, you're trying to be a disciple, you're trying to practice, but every time you practice this piece of you comes up and says, oh yeah, you think that's really true? Think that's really going to work? You can doubt yourself, you can doubt the path, Swamiji talked about he just went through a period of doubt with Master. Where just whatever Master said, he just questioned it. And the, Swami speaks of a, you know, an incarnation a long time ago when he actually attained, he said, a very high state of spirituality, but then he argued with his guru. This is what Brighu told him um, the, in the Brighu reading. And Swami felt that it was a true thing. He'd argued with his guru and he fell. So it's sort of like he felt when that moment was coming with Master, it was like the karma was coming up again, that he was going to doubt him and fight with him. And then Swamiji said he solved it, and this is where he says, the answer to doubt is love. It's just the realization that you don't have to analyze everything to the end. I read somewhere else, when you love something, you find reasons for unity. That had a very profound effect on me when I thought about it. Because sometimes I, I like everyone else, but I can be as particularly good at this. I just get stuck on a detail. I like, to be, I like my own ideas. And I, I, my, my articulation of it is, when I think I'm right, I can be a real stinker. 
And I realize that when I think I'm right, I see the reasons for disunity, if others disagree with me. And just that thought, oh, when you love something, you see reasons for unity. You respect them, you care about them, you want them to be happy, you don't really care. Other things become less important. That's how Swami said he reconnected with Master. He realized that regardless of everything that was happening, he loved this man. I mean, just wholeheartedly, with every part of himself, he loved him. And he felt his love in return. So all of these things which seemed so important were so unimportant compared to that essential quality. I mean, that's that, we experience that in our human lives all the time, in our human relationships and mothers with small babies. I mean, babies can be really annoying. Small children can be really annoying. But you love them. So the annoying doesn't bother you in the same way, even when they grow up, even if they're really annoying. You still, you just love them. You see reasons for unity. Doubt is when you're always trying to find a reason for disunity. And Swamiji puts it here. The other part of it is, um, if you constantly doubt, and he just describes it just so simply. He said, such doubt is simply a bad habit, a mental tendency which prevents one from committing himself wholeheartedly to anything. And I've, I've unfortunately seen that in too many people. It's just like, well, why don't you come with us? Why don't we just do this? Well, you know, I'm not sure about that part of it, and I don't like the way they do this. And, and, and what you really see is you just see someone walling themselves off. And, what, you know, whether it's doubt in the form of, you know, specific big question, but it's just doubting the, the flow. It's doubting the appropriateness. Uh, it's always having to analyze and find some little piece that allows you to stay separate. That's where love being the antidote, love leads to cause for unity. And it's a, a, a very bad habit to always try to find what's wrong and to be fearful about what's wrong. Yes. And of course, uh, love is an aspect of OM. Mm-hmm. And so no wonder that it's uh, the perfect antidote for doubt. And also because love, OM then gives you an experience. And when you have that experience, you... You just recognize that that experience transcends the details. And the habit of analyzing things by the details is what uh, ruins us. I have one particular friend who has that habit. It's very sad. Just whatever happens, everybody's always enthusiastic. And then, you know, one or two people always have to have a reason why. Not quite. And then they always get to separate themselves just a little from the herd just a little bit. They never have to quite, they never get to commit wholeheartedly because they've always got a piece of it that's not going to quite fit. And it always, you can always find a piece that doesn't fit. And that's why he says the answer is love, not facts. Master put it really well when he said, uh, in every building there's also a sewer system. <laughs> he said, so it's just a question of whether you really just want to like, look at the drains or whether you want to look at the whole edifice. And sometimes we doubt, we think we're being particularly realistic. I remember a friend once and just always had a tendency to point out what was wrong. And I said, why do you always do that? And then he was honest enough to say, I, I, he said, uh, I like to appear astute. <laughs> I said, well, you don't. <laughs> and he changed, actually. It was actually very heartening. He just realized it was a bad mental habit, that the habit of you know, analyzing and finding something to criticize and be uncertain about was just a bad mental habit. And he, he, thought, he thought it was a virtue. You know the way 
American education is, especially higher education, you get together and you criticize. It just wipes everybody out. It doesn't help anybody. Swami tells an interesting story of um, two, two clubs, writers' clubs, aspiring writers. One was a men's group and one was a women's group. And he said of, in the women's group, quite a few of them became very successful published authors, and in the men's group, none of them did. And the way the meetings were conducted was entirely opposite. The men would get together, they would read their work, and then they would criticize each other and tell each other what was wrong. The women would get together, they would read their work, and the women would encourage each other. And the result was that the women flourished and the men did not. Because it's just that habit of always wanting... And that's, in a sense, what happened to me when I... Because I had a habit of always appearing astute by noticing what was missing. So whenever I wrote a sentence, the first thing I noticed was what was wrong with it. I just couldn't do anything. It was a very bad mental habit. I didn't have doubt... But criticism is a form of doubt in that sense. You're, you know, you're looking at what's wrong. Why doesn't this quite work? Instead of looking at it with love and finding reasons for unity. Does that make sense? It's not the same as discrimination. And the doubter is the most miserable of mortals. So if you're one of those, maybe you, could, you might want to change. <laughs> Any comments or questions? I mean, people tell you that they can't, but you can change anything. By the grace of God or by listening to the Om. How about that? All these obstacles, and it's very serious, all these obstacles can be overcome by meditation on the Om. So Patanjali is not just giving us a discouraging list of impossible pitfalls. He's saying, oh, these are the problems you'll run into, here's the solution. He gave us the solution first, too. Wasn't that nice of him? So that we didn't have to just run this list. The fourth one is carelessness, which is actually, I got really interested in this, Carelessness comes from not paying attention to what one is doing. And then he suggests that if you have that habit, then find things that interest you and pursue them intensely for as long as you can remain interested in them. Then go and do something else. Train yourself to be focused on one subject at a time. That's all he says about it. I, I, I do cooking. I have done cooking, and I've, I've managed large events and had lots of helpers. Um, and the art of getting people to pay attention to what they're doing. You know, here's, here's the size that the cucumber needs to be cut. And then I, I, I put it on the table and I would put a little glass over it. There's your model. I'd come back in five minutes and they were this big and this big and this big and they were round and they were long. And I would say, Look, look at the model. And I'd hold the model next to what they were doing. You know, like, where were you? And it, it's, just, it's just not paying attention to what you're doing. And it's, it's a very serious spiritual habit. That's why excellence is, is a factor of, of an important principle in the spiritual life, is to do whatever you do and do it really well. Because the reasons we don't do it well, I mean, you can do it badly because you don't have the talent to do it well, but careless is different. I, I, I built a, some stairs once to my little trailer when I was living at Ananda Village in the 70s. And, you know, there, was, there were enough men around who were guardian angels that I never really had to do anything like that. I could just ask someone and they would help me. But I decided to build those stairs myself. They were so badly built. I mean, just comically bad. 
But that was the best I could do, and I was so proud of those stairs. And I mean, any real carpenter who looked at them just laughed himself sick when I saw it, because, you know, they weren't quite stable, so I just made up ways of making them stable, and all the nails were bent. They were just awful. But I was, I'd done them myself, and I'd done them with full attention. So it's not a question of having to be excellent at it. It's just a question of not going to sleep while you're doing it. And a lot of times carelessness becomes a really big habit and you just dismiss it. I mean, most of the people that I would cook and I would tell them that every one of those potatoes has to be the same size, they would just think I was just a fanatic. But if you're cooking eight gallons of potatoes and they vary enormously in size, many of them will be overcooked and some of them will be raw. It's not a random thought. It really has to be a certain way. And then you serve it and it looks like you were careless when you cooked it. So it's just sort of like one of those things. It's a matter of staying awake because awareness is everything. And if we get in the habit of going to sleep at any point in our lives, we get in the habit of going to sleep everywhere in our lives. And what puts us to sleep? Well, if we, after we go to sleep, we become dull, don't we? And so there we are, we've done one, and then we've done two, and then they'll all interrelate to each other. So it's, it's just very important. Well, careless is exactly the right word. And you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. And that's a, that's a mistake we have. Oh, I don't really want to be involved in this. This is what people do. I don't really want to be involved in this. I want to be aloof from these things. You know, I may have to do this work, but I really want to be somewhere else. So we do it without any attention to it. I mean, if your brother Lawrence or St. Joseph of Cupertino and you can't set the table because you're levitating and you can't reach the table, you're not being careless. You're, you're really somewhere else. But if you're actually just being dull, when you should be attentive, then you're doing two of Patanjali's obstacles at the same time. So we just have to watch it. And not all of us have the best attention span. The two books that I've written have been perfect for me because they're two collections of stories. Because I can concentrate and be creative in short, intense bursts. So it was a perfect work for me because I just could finish it completely and then I could take a break. And it's sort of like um, what he's saying. Find something you're really interested in and concentrate on it for as long as you can and then go on to something else so that you avoid that, that dull, careless period. Work with your own nature. The next book I'm going to try to write, it's going to be longer and more continuous. But I've already in my mind broken it down into little pieces <laughs> so I can still do it. Because we, we know our own failings. We have to work with that also. Does that make sense? It's a hugely important one. And that's one of the reasons why seva, and seva with selfless service in company of other devotees is an extremely important aspect of the spiritual path. Because if you're with someone who has a very alert consciousness and a very conscientious attitude and you have a less alert consciousness and a less conscientious attitude, they'll annoy you terribly trying to get you to do it better, but it'll raise your energy level. I remember working with Swami once on... He was... Just one night, I, I don't know, he didn't, he didn't explain to me at least what was motivating him, but he had, this was when his dome, if you've been to Crystal Hermitage, his whole house was just, just the upstairs, there was no underneath. And where you go in the doorway to go down into the downstairs apartment now, there's a big closet, and that was his meditation room. And to soundproof it, someone had had the idea of putting egg cartons in there. I've told you this story. 
And somehow or another, all those pointy things, even though they were behind a curtain, just really disturbed him. And he really wanted to re-panel it with styrofoam. And he had these huge styrofoam sheets. And he had Seva and me and him working on this, which was not the best crew for that kind of work. But he was just determined to do it, and we were confident enough. So we stayed up till about 3 in the morning. And he was, we were just going to get that thing done, and there was no question. It was also a very interesting lesson in willpower and energy. Because it, it had been a full day of work, and we just started. And that was, a problem. It was probably more like 1 in the morning, just to be clear. But we had to pull it all down. We took the curtains down. We had to cut all the styrofoam. We had to attach it all. And I think it was like, you know, the whole thing. It's a dome, so it was really weird. Had to get it all up there and secure it, and then the curtains over it. And I mean, there was no stopping. We were just going to do it like that. And very conscientiously, it all had to be done. You know, it, it wasn't, we were not finished carpenters by any means, but still, very well. But I vividly just remember the feeling of just concentration and determination, which I think really had a very strong effect on me because I was already a hard worker. But I really learned something completely new about work when we were doing that together and then finished, just finished it. He was very, he was so happy with it. That was also a very nice part of it. Oh, look what we did. Just a tremendous sense of satisfaction. And it wasn't merely that, you know, we, he, the room was ready. It was that the satisfaction was also the effort that had been made. So conscientiously, it really helped me to understand a lot about that. The, la- the last one I learned on that was when I was cooking at the kitchen in the retreat, and we used to have Sunday services up there, and then the whole community would have lunch afterwards. Swami would give service every other Sunday, and I was responsible for the lunch. Sunday, Swami cooked. I, I got up early. I, I made the best meals I could, which were not very good, but they were the best I could do until I learned more. The weeks he wasn't there, just about anything would do. <laughs> and finally, I felt it. I just felt inside myself that this was not an attitude that was pleasing to Swamiji. And it was not an attitude that was right for me either. It's like, you know, I was being careless. I was being really careless. I just put anything out there. It didn't make any difference to me. But it was an obstacle to my spiritual growth to be so careless. So I started treating every Sunday as exactly the same. And, and then, of course, it changed me. And you overcome these obstacles, you feel freer in yourself. And everything else follows. Okay? I think that covers the subject. Is there any questions? We have more of these to go, so we're not going to get off of this sutra yet. The next one is laziness. Stay tuned for laziness. Oh, no class next week. Yeah, for no reason at all, except I'm taking a holiday. So, I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. God bless you.